This is Fundraising Radio, and today's a guest speaker. We have Dan Tompkin, founder and managing director at Resurgent Capital Partners. And in this episode, we're mostly going to focus on acquisitions. What is a strategic versus financial acquisition? Who can expect which type of acquisition? What's the minimum amount of the acquisition? Because most people think that you know acquisition is something starting off 10, 100 million. And in most cases, it's actually less than that. So Dan is going to tell us about that. And also we'll cover typical terms of the acquisition. So Dan, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Resurgent Capital Partners. Sure. Well, th- thank you for uh, having me uh, on today. Um, yeah, my, my background is a little bit all, all over the place. So I started in venture capital. I was an associate at a venture firm here in Los Angeles, and we we did software investments like like most VC firms. Um, and then I went off and started my own um, software company in the uh, call center technology space focused on transportation companies and built that up over five years. Um, and we sold it to a very uh, to a strategic, which we'll talk about what that means later, um, to a, a large a large French company. Uh, at which point, I started a new division for them and became the CTO of their two billion dollar business. So, uh, you know, kind of had had the the investment side of of startups. Then, you know, ran my own company and exit, and I was at a big company. So I did you know a lot of uh, acquisition work for the big company as well as the technology side. And then I spun out and started my own private equity firm. Um, so I, I've had, you know, varied experience. I'm maybe perhaps not an expert in any of them, but I've touched all of them, um, which, which seems to be a little bit rare from my background. Most people tend to, uh, get in one lane and, and stay with it. On, I, I get bored quickly. So that, uh, that, that has never really quite worked for me. Yeah. Um, I've, I've bought seven companies and so far sold four. Um, so it's not like I've done hundreds of them, but I've usually been, Either the, I've been the guy leading the deal in all those in, in all those whether I'm the buyer or the seller, so uh, mm-hmm. very close to the deal process at each time. Got it. That's pretty interesting. So uh, we'll move on to this part where you said that you bought seven companies and sold four so far, because that's something really interesting and that sounds really intriguing. But first, we'll talk about strategic strategic versus financial acquisition. What's the difference between them? Sure. Um, so, so you're touching on the two main acquirer types out there. And, and anytime you say, you know, something's a strategic acquirer, or financial acquirer, obviously there are, there are people in between, but let's, you know, talk a little bit more broadly. A, stri- a, tr- a strategic acquirer is generally someone that has an operating business and they want to buy a business that they think is complementary, kind of the old saying of one plus one equals three. So Salesforce might buy another software company because they want that target's capabilities available in their platform. And they believe that if they have that, they can sell that add-on or, or that piece of software to all their existing customers through their existing sales channels. That would be an example of a, like a strategic acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, but two competitors can merge also and to take cost out of the market. For instance, if Uber and Lyft merged, um, you know, they basically have redund- they have driver acquisition costs, which are pretty redundant going after the same people and competing against each other. Customer acquisition costs, which are redundant and competing after each other. So they they could merge and probably consolidate a lot of their costs. So that would be yeah. another example of a strategic acquisition. So strategic is it's just a broad catch all term for um, one plus one equals three. <laughs> so um, financial acquirers are, are different. So that's like a, a private equity firm, which, which is what I run. Um, basically it's, you don't have an operating company and you're buying something cause you think it's a, you can get a good financial return on it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are certainly circumstances where a, private, a very common private equity playbook is to buy a bigger company, typically a platform, an asset, but it's doing strategic acquisitions with, with that asset. Um, the point of differentiating between strategic and financial requires really just to, to try to figure out the motivations um, of it. And broadly, rates are not freely available, but available at cheap rates. Um, you see that sometimes actually financial requires might pay more than strategic. So it gets a little bit muddy, but in general, broadly, strategics pay more than, than financial acquire. That's actually surprising. I was pretty sure that financial requires pay more than strategic. But uh, let's talk about, actually, I'm curious, how do you raise private equity firm. So we said that you started one of your own. First of all, what does a private equity firm mostly do in terms of startup field? And how do you raise a private equity uh, firm? Yeah, so let, let's talk about um, where PE is in, in startups. And maybe the way to back up a little bit is the term private equity is is kind of, the term private equity is a big catch-all. I'd say there's three big categories of private equity and, and believe it or not, VCs under private equity. Private equity is venture in three big categories is venture capital, growth equity, and leverage buyout. The leverage buyout, which means leverage is taking on debt to buy something. Um, that's usually what PE is thought of. And so each of those three types of three asset classes underneath private equity, um, they kind of have different ways of achieving the same outcome, which is usually a, you know, across their fund of investments or across their investments to 25% IRR. Um, so in VC, it's massive growth, right? Um, it's it's betting on something small that it's going to be big. In growth mm-hmm. equity, it's betting on something that has momentum that is going to keep growing at a fast rate. And in leverage buyout or, or private equity, um, it's betting on something as a, a smaller growth rate or something you could take a lot of cost out, but because you're using a lot of debt, you can get those same returns. And so, when it comes to the leverage buyout or private equity side, you really don't have much play in the startup world because those are to borrow money. You need a profitable company. Usually uh, there are certainly exceptions to that, like like venture debt and some of the royalty based financing that's out there for software companies. Um, but generally um, you need a profitable company so you can borrow money against, right? Because mm-hmm. lenders prefer to lend against the company that they're pretty sure can pay them back. Absolutely. Got it. So uh, how do you source your deals? So you said that you bought seven companies so far. How do you find those companies and what type of companies do you usually buy? So can you give me like an example of one company that you bought recently? Sure. I, well, maybe backing up a little bit is in, in our world, uh, in, in the private equity LBO world, we have intermediaries or investment bankers. And in general, like the, the world breaks out three ways. And it took me a while to learn this. So I think it's for anyone who's looking to go buy a company um, as, as opposed to starting one, you know, if you're looking for something, uh, 2 million, what we call EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, um, and amortization. Um, if you're looking for something above 2 million EBITDA and, and really probably 3 million EBITDA, you're, you're looking at the investment banking world and, and those deals get, get really big and, Mm-hmm. And then between kind of one to three million in EBITDA, you have what's called what I'd call M&A intermediaries, which are, you know, some which are, you know, those are those are still smaller businesses, but they need to be more professionally represented. And they might have a more narrow buyer set than the next category, which is small businesses, which are a million in, in uh, EBITDA and under. And that's usually business brokers. And where you go and find those deals is, is in, in those three categories is very different. Um, 
generally the million and under you can go on to biz buy sell or many different places and 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 uh, there's there's little markets that have popped up to sell software companies or e-commerce companies uh, out there that are available for you to look at too um not just biz buy sell but you can find assets to assets or companies to purchase um and, and those are basically like it sounds buying buying company off a off a website um the that middle tier of kind of one to three is a bunch of small small local guys that they don't want to advertise a decent sized business on biz by sell because most people in biz by sell can't afford a business above a million dollars um they're trying to go to they're trying to go to you know wealthy individuals family offices or a firm like um a firm like mine maybe um, and then the three million and above is where you know m- most of private equity plays. I even you know we look at those deals too, uh, and that and that you know three million and above is a is a bit, that's a that's a big universe, right? Because three million is a pretty low tier. You have businesses out there that make you know hundreds of millions a year, and then yeah. are you, you can see out there. But those are the more professionally represented businesses with longer processes and and um, that that are they're also more selective, whereas. You know, you're, they're not going to go to, um, they're not going to send a book for a fifteen million dollar EBITDA business to to you know some executive that that's sitting at home. Uh, whereas the the broker on biz buy sell is happy to speak to that person, uh, but it, um, it, and and will speak to anybody who fills out a form on the website for the most part. So just just a very different way of going to market and, and being right. efficient. So speaking of going to market and you know differentiating between big and small deals. Let's talk about small deals. So most of my listeners are actually early stage startup founders. And I'm curious, what's the minimum size acquisition that you've ever seen that made sense? Well, I mean, I've been, I've been paid to take companies. So I guess the, the minimum size for me has been a negative purchase price. <laughs> um, Wait, how, what, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. Sometimes, um, Generally, larger uh, companies, conglomerate types, will buy a bunch of stuff under a strategy that an executive may have put together. Generally, the CEO, um, and either something like the coronavirus might come along, or or they change the executive and the strategy, and all of a sudden they have these pieces of the puzzle that no longer fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of these pieces of the puzzle are are not very. We're we're again, they're a strategic acquisition meant to roll up to something interesting, and now they're not. And so those companies want those assets gone. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, those assets are are damaged or impaired in a way that it makes the business very difficult to shut down. They might have long-term contracts or something like that, but they don't want that business and that business may be losing money. So they will pay you to take it off their hands. Oh. Um, so that, 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 look, that's a rare, that's a rare circumstance. And, and when mm-hmm. you get one of those, you know, you, you, you get what you pay for. So it means you've got work to do. Um, we, we recently had a business that we were pretty much paid, you know, low hundreds of thousands of the take that, that we probably have, um, you probably turned around, you know, to, to make a little under a million in that. So that's an example. Look, that that's one that went really right. There's obviously some that go really wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are, those are, uh, th- those are unique deals. But so as far as minimum size, a deal can be whatever a, a deal really comes down to what is somebody interested in. Um, I think for your listeners, when they're looking at getting acquired by like, let's say a strategic, the minimum, the, one of the problems you have for, for them is that 
it's about the same cost to do a, a, a small deal and a big deal. So if I'm the VP of corporate development at a, you know, medium or big size firm, and I'm looking at buying your, your software company, if you're doing 2 million in revenue, it's about the same cost of time and, and, and lawyers and accountants and all that than to buy, you know, a company three times your size. Mm-hmm. So one of the things to remember is that it, it's about kind of their conservation of movement. Is it worth their time to, to deal with you? So there really isn't necessarily a minimum size. It's just more like how bad do they want it? Is this something, is this an asset they really want? Do they see it fitting? I mean, you, I, I think you guys see all the time companies with zero revenue getting bought for hundreds of millions, right? Yep. Well, they have something that someone wanted. So you know, that, that, that made it. So I, I, I think, Size is a is a is a size is size is more a factor when you're talking to financial acquirers. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going to a firm that you know most most private equity firms like ours, you put right on the website what you're willing to buy and not. So, if somebody calls me about a business that makes two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, if it fits into what we're doing in some of our companies, we're probably interested. Um, and we might be interested just because we're we're more kind of all over the place. But most firms that have committed capital have a very dedicated, you know, this is the band they play in because they can only make X number of in investments. And if they make a small investment, it doesn't work to make their overall fund economics. Mm-hmm. So you really see minimum size thresholds. And they're generally in our world based on earnings um, in, in private equity. Um, when it comes to VC, which is different than acquisitions because you're not taking full control, you could see right on the guy's website, you know, generally where they play, if they're, if they're seed stage or if they're, if they're growth or wh- where they are, you know, you don't want to take a seed deal to a growth guy. Growth guy wants to write $20 million checks, not a million dollar check. And mm-hmm. even if it's the greatest deal on world, they can't do it because it doesn't make their fund economics work. Yeah, that does make sense. So you mentioned earlier on a site called, uh, Bees sell buy something like that. Oh, biz buy sell. Biz buy sell. I was close. I was close enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there a way for a startup boundary to accelerate this process of acquisition? And for example, one of my previous speakers actually basically got saved uh, by getting acquired, and he got saved because he already knew the guy who acquired him later on. They they built uh, this relationship really early on, and when he needed that acquisition, he faced a a lawsuit from California for forgetting some you know some small thing. But sure. which turned into a pretty big, uh, you know, sum of money in fines, and this acquisition acquisition basically saved him and gave him plenty of profits, you know, afterwards. Uh, so, do you think there is a good way to accelerate this process of getting acquired? Do you think there is a good way of building this relationship with potential acquirers? Yeah, I, I, and I think what your what the prior uh, person did is is a good example of that. I mean, in general, the way I think about it is, you want someone to buy your company, you don't want to sell it. Um, and that, that sounds like a plan words, but it's important to step back and think about because if someone's coming to buy your company, it means that you've built something valuable over time that they want. Mm-hmm. And that means, and likely they're going to pay more for it versus selling your company is you saying, it's you saying that you're, you're done. Like, I, I want to sell this thing. This is for whatever reason, good or bad, I, I'm, I'm going to sell this thing. And just think about it. Like if I, if I come to you and say, um, will you buy what I have? Your the price in your head is lower than if you come to me and say, um, "Can I, can I buy what you have?" Right? It's just it's yeah. just different. 
it, it's just it's just a different mentality to start with. Um, I can tell you a lot of small business owners, uh, a lot of e, a lot of PE firms we do proactive reach out where you'll call an owner who may not be selling, and if you call them and say, "Okay, I'm interested in buying your business," it doesn't matter what the what the average prices in their industry that guy's dollar signs are skyrocketing in that guy's head because <laughs> what, what he's thinking is well you called me so you must yeah. think it's worth a lot so I, yeah. I try to think as much to that as possible is how do you um, more from how do you figure out um, kind of the best value and, and I think what your uh, price period did is the right way that from the entrepreneurial view I, I try to think of building the company um, I don't think of like, how do I build a company to sell? Cause I think it's very hard to predict outcomes. The, the first company I sold unified dispatch, um, the company Transdev, as I mentioned in the intro bought it and they didn't even exist when the company started. They were a, a roll up of a lot of different assets. So I, I could have never sat in my little office and, and said, okay, well I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing and Transdev's going to buy it the product that they really wanted out of unified didn't exist until a few years later. And I certainly didn't have a, 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 I didn't have an idea of that product at the start. So like things happen over time. Um, so I think the most important thing to realize is that if you're building good products and you're strong, you know, you have strong relationships with partners or customers and you have a good team and you're making customers happy, someone's going to ultimately value that. So I, I would work harder. I, I, I work more towards that. So look, Relationships are important. Um, anytime. So how I got to the going, you know, staying with the unified story is uh, they were a uh, unified and transitive. They were a customer. Uh, my flight was late. Um, and I told uh, one, I told one of the customers said, Oh yeah, we're building this technology that connects, you know, private transportation fleets with, with um, paratransit agencies and transit agencies. And they said, Oh wow, we're looking for that too. <laughs> and then the next thing was, would, we, would you be interested in selling your company? And you know, the answer to that's always sure, right? I'll take a, you know, why, why wouldn't you listen to what someone has to offer? Right. Um, and then ten months later, that's how long it took. Um, they they bought the company, and so that that conversation probably never occurs. It just never occurs unless a flight's delayed. So, but we had already had a pre-existing relationship. You know, they were they had been a customer for two or three years, um, and and we we had kind of built the relationship where we could kind of sit in a room and just talk back and forth if we didn't have specific business. Um, and it just kind of led to that. And, and I'm not saying everything has to be serendipity like that, but a relationship matters. I mean, it really gets you. It it gets you that extra statement. It allows you that extra moment in the room when they might ask you a question and you answer it innocently and honestly, and it leads to, you know, an acquisition. Um, so relationships are, are a big piece of it. And again, if you're building the business, right, you're going to have customer relationships, you're going to have partner relationships, vendor relationships, you're, you're going to, you're going to know, um, you're going to know a lot of people. And those are three examples of strategic, of relationships that often end up in strategic acquisitions like trends of buying unified. Right. Right. Actually, one of the speakers that's coming soon on Reason Radio, she sold her first company to her one of her first customers as well. So it's it's pretty interesting, and she also got funding from her customers as well. So it's it's a pretty fun fun strategy, you know, through for funding through your own customers, and it does make sense. So let's talk about how acquisition looks like from a point of seller. So from a point of startup founder, let's pretend that I have a company. It's 
kind of fine, but it's not like a unicorn or something like that. So for example, I'm making, I know, a million in annual recurring revenue. Uh, what happens? when? Sure. So if, if, if you're, if someone's knocked on your door, as opposed to, again, like we talked about hiring a, a banker or broker or whatever to take it out to market to sell. Um, generally, the process looks like the, there's an indication of interest, um, which is basically a broad range of what they think the company's worth in, in very loose terms. There's a letter of intent, um, which tightens up the terms more and what they're looking for. And then if you sign the letter of intent, that gives them a period of exclusivity to get the deal done. And then there's the agreement to buy the company. If you, again, if someone knocked on your door, maybe they don't do the indication of interest. Maybe it's not necessary. Maybe they go straight to letter of intent. Um, in a bank deal, you'd have in a large bank process, like what they call an auction deal, you would have a, um, you definitely have an indication of interest to a letter of intent to a definitive agreement. Um, and you'd be slimming down the parties in each round. You know, obviously only one person can sign the definitive agreement to buy the company. Um, so from from my side as the acquirer, um, first, I the most important thing again. This is more as a more as a financial acquirer is we need to see some financials. Just need to have some idea of what the company's doing. Um, and, and usually, what I'm going to try as quickly as possible is to figure out generally what do you think the company's worth. And the reason for that is most people, um, most people think the company's worth way more than we think it's worth, and conservation of our time is the the biggest the biggest piece. So, um, it's a little bit different if someone's knocked on your door because you know you may not have thought of that. If it's a bank process, you know you should have before you go through the process really a, a thought of, um, you know, what is this thing worth? And generally, your your banker is going to help you understand that. Um, the smaller the bank, the less they're probably going to do to help you understand it. They may just go out and just take the thing out to market and see what offers come back. Mm-hmm. Um, my general suggestion is, is, is don't do that. Um, have an idea of what you want and, and, you know, figure out how realistic or, or, or unrealistic it is. Cause these processes are, are very long. They take a, they take a while to get, they take a while to get done. Um, and they're just, they're just, dis, they're disruptive to your business. And once you've signed the letter of intent to sell your business, the thing that will kill your deal is if your business starts slipping because you're paying too much attention to the deal and not getting the business done. The victory in getting a deal done isn't getting the letter of intent signed. It's it's getting the definitive agreement signed. So it's like when you sign a letter of intent, you're not only dealing with the acquirer, but I, I would suggest you work 50% harder on your business to make sure that it's going to be okay and that you're not going to have some issue right before. Um. So that that can so like that process can take anywhere from, you know, the IOI LOI agreement. I mean, I've, I've seen it in in really hot situations be thirty days. Um, smaller businesses transact anywhere from thirty to ninety days. Sometimes people are going out and get a, a small business administration loan, and that may that may add you know thirty to sixty days to the process. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had deals that have taken almost a year uh, to do, um, and they they were complex because they had lenders and a bunch of other a bunch of other partners at the table and they just took a while or the business owner wasn't really organized and we'd ask for something and it would take them a month to get it. And processes can kind of, can kind of drag um, all over the place. Um, The things you should be ready for before you go sell your business is you want to make sure there's no equity loose ends that you have everything kind of tied up. Like your cap table is solid and and we, you know, who has what rights and all that. So you don't get tripped up by that the last minute. 
since I'm guessing most of your listeners are software or technology companies, you yeah. want to have your IP assignment agreements done and signed before you get into this process. Strategic acquirers get scared by that stuff, um, and, and rightfully so. Um, you want to make sure, to the extent possible, any lawsuits are taken care of or buttoned up. Um, to the extent possible, I always suggest having limitation of liability clauses in your contracts. Um, generally, generally the ones I always did was you can, uh, only get one year of one year max of paid fees to the company. Uh, so that way you're kind of limiting any, any legal, mm-hmm. any legal, uh, problems that even if you are in the middle of acquisition and a customer sues or a part or, 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 or partner sues, you're at least in a position where you have a capped liability. Right. Yeah. Um, so a lot of these things are just, you know, a lot of – to make the process go faster, the IOI-LOI agreement, the more cleaned up you are in advance, the easier it is to get them information. You have your books in order and all. And like we're talking about the IP assignments, um, you know, make make sure you've got your domains owned <laughs> long enough, your <laughs> your trademarks, all those other stuff. Um, you know, having your act together is really important. Having having It'll accelerate it by keeping your company clean having a clean process so you don't have a bunch of stuff to clean up. Absolutely. Yeah, that does make sense. And investment bankers actually help with that stuff a lot. But here I want to mention, by the way, a really interesting book that I still didn't finish, but I'm in the process. It's called Barbarians at the Gates. I bet oh, okay. <laughs> read it. I, I can see that you read it. Yeah. <laughs> but if you book. want to, if you want to release, I mean, if you want to read about an epic limited buyout, that's that's the book you need to to read to read because it's just it's just epic you know uh best stories from i think best stories about the, the lbo and i think the most famous one but here we're moving on to the last question then we'll wrap it up and it's something that i started doing recently with all my speakers is doing this small call to action because i'm a big believer in baby steps each day so i hope that my listeners are doing those small steps you know to get to this uh to the final success. So let's help them do this. And what the baby step would you recommend them taking as soon as this episode is over? So what one specific thing would you like them to do right now? Call a customer or a prospect. Good. Point. I mean, su- success in business is very, um, it, it, it can be very boring and predictable. Uh, I think the deal, I think people get seduced by the deal business and think, um, you know, it's, like you fly in on a private jet, you shake a couple hands, have a dinner, and then you 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 take a big fee and leave. The, the truth of the matter is, if you, if you've chosen to run a business, um, and, and I come more from choosing to run a business than the, than the the deal side, despite being in the deal business, um, the way to succeed is figure out what the right things are and just do them every day. And the right things are very mundane; they're very ordinary, and so oh, yeah. it's hard to it's hard to get up every day and do them. Um, mm-hmm. But doing them is what makes you succeed. And I think a lot of people are really stuck on, on having to be brilliant. Um, as someone once said to me that, that there's a lot of smart people in the world and being smart's a commodity. I'm sure all, all of us here and all your listeners, I'm sure are smart people, but so that doesn't really matter. Being smart doesn't matter. It's, it's, are you doing the right things and are you doing them consistently? Yep. And then back to what I'm saying, if, if you're doing it, then somebody's going to find what you're doing valuable and like whether you have a, a 10 whether you end up with a million dollar a year in revenue business or, or, or a billion in revenue a year, you know, there, there's a lot of other factors that go into that that really have nothing to do with 
how good or, or, or how bad of an executive or a leader you are. Um, just sometimes there's luck, sometimes there's, there's other things and we should all acknowledge those factors. But ultimately, um, doing the right things every day will get you somewhere. Right. I mean, that's the true American dream right here. You work hard, you get something at the end. And usually that something is a pretty good sum of money. So <laughs> be consistent, do the right thing. And right now, as soon as this episode is over, call your customer, call your potential customer. Or, you know, if you're afraid of calls, uh, just text them, damn it. Don't be confused. <laughs> okay. So we'll wrap it up here. Thanks a lot, Dan. Uh, that was a great episode. I'll definitely place it in the educational part of my uh, fo- uh, of my podcast and people will be able to review it once they want to educate themselves. And I'm pretty sure that they will be satisfied what, with what they hear here because I think it was it was really tons of details on the acquisition part. And thanks for that. And thanks for taking your time to participate on Fundraising Radio. Oh, thank you, Constantine.